I mean, I also want to uh, thank, start with heartfelt thanks for uh, giving me an opportunity to not stop in Miami and be able to come. <laughs> I'm, I'm running on a fair amount of coffee at this point, um, so I don't want to take complete responsibility for whatever's going to come out in the coming minutes. But also, uh, I'm actually not such a big fan of Rabbi Foxburner's because he stole one of our great teachers and, uh, and brought her to, and I, I feel the same way about uh, Rabbi Schwartzmer, who uh, stole another one of our great teachers. Um, but uh, thank you both to the Schwartzmers and the Foxburners for, uh, for helping to make this possible. We have a mission in Perkiabos at the very beginning that tells us that on three things the world stands. On Torah, on Avodah, and Al Milus Hasadim. Now, it would be a question why it is that we would say the world stands specifically on three mitzvahs. But what it's really saying over here is not that there are three mitzvahs, but rather it's dividing the Torah up into three categories of mitzvahs. When it talks about a voda, which is karbanis or a it's what we call the category of mitzvahs of Bein Adam Lamakom. Those mitzvahs that we perform in the context of a direct awareness of a Kaddish Baruch when standing before him. When it mentions Gmilas Chasadim, doing kindness for other people, it's referring to that category of mitzvahs which we do in a social context between ourselves and other people. And Torah, really at its essence, is based on a process. Obviously, through the Torah we understand the world, but ultimately we're understanding the world as it's reflected through our own Selim Elohim, the image of God within us. And as a result of which, the study of Torah is really at its deepest level a study of self. This comes out most clearly uh, in or can be seen most obviously, not that I'm a student of this, but of the, uh, of the mystical Torah, the Torah, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the mystical Torah, which uh, when the Nefesh Chaim speaks about it, he talks about the fact that Rove of the Zohar is really a process of understanding deeply what it really means to say that man was created in Selim Elohim. But through the, God, a creator always creates in his image, so his creation of the universe is as much the image of God as the creation of man is the image of God and therefore if we really want to understand the world around us we can only understand it as it's refracted through our own Selma so on a certain level really Torah is that category of a person coming to know themselves more deeply there are three different ways of really these are the three dimensions of human experience I experience myself as an individual, I experience myself in the context of others, and I experience myself as standing before God. And each one of these has to be sanctified. Uh, each one of them is a different way, has its own unique way of developing, uh, uh, or for me developing my relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. The weight of each one of these different categories in the overall relationship that we have with the Kaddish Baruch Hu actually shifts during the course of history. In the early days, I'm not talking about the 1920s, I mean, the real early days, uh, time of Bias Rishon, the time of the first temple, the temple really was the focus of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and it really went in step with the fact that that was a time in human history when we had a intuitive awareness of both the existence and the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in a way that we really we can't even imagine at this point. In other words, a Kaddish Baruch Hu was an ongoing the create the world was a creation for us, and the existence and presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Creator, was something that was an integral part of our awareness of reality. And therefore, it makes sense that the overall relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu was much more focused around that direct awareness of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, um, in the form of the temple, the temple sacrifices, but not just when we were in the temple, but the whole, that whole sense of awareness, that whole sense of the Kaddish Baruch Hu went along with that. 
the first temple was destroyed through the inversion of that very sort of basis of the relationship. Idolatry was the primary cause of the destruction of the first temple. So if the first temple was the time when we were connected to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, Avodah was its basis, then undermining that aspect was really the thing that brought about the destruction of the temple. The second temple was actually quite different from the first temple. Um, there's a medrash called Perke Hechalos, which says that when the Jews were building by Yeshani, they were told that the Shekhinah was not going to dwell in the temple. At which point the Jews rebelled and said, then why are we going to all the trouble of building this thing? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu told them, the Shekhinah will not be there, but out of this temple will come Torah. And what you see from this already, very powerfully, which also makes sense, again, by the time we get to Vayashani, for reasons that, if I'm going to, I, I guess if I was a book tour, I would have had the intelligence to bring a book with me, but uh, something that's discussed extensively in, in some of my writing is uh, the passing of that time when that awareness of Kaddish Baruch was an intuitive part of our world. The way that the uh, sages present that, Chazal present that, is talking about the fact that there was a nullification of the inclination in man to worship idols. But with that, you can't get rid of an inclination to worship idols without getting rid of an intuition or an inclination to worship at all. And the way you get rid of that inclination to worship is taking that awareness of a Kaddish Baruch as an in, as an intuitive part of your world, uh, your your awareness of the world, taking that away. With that going away, avoda obviously remains an essential component of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but it's no longer what we call the basis. Maybe what we might describe as the basis of that relationship. Perkei seems to be pointing to the fact that it shifts at that point from avoda really to Torah. Not a hundred percent clear because we know that by Shani was destroyed not by a problem in Torah, that's not the way it's brought down in the Talmud, but actually Sinat Chinam, which is a social malady. So, one way or the other, if that's going to, what's going to bring down the Temple, which is always going to be on some level the sort of the bias, it's the home of the relationship, if it can be destroyed through a social disintegration, then that obviously indicates the increased significance of the Bein Adam L'chavero, Bein Man component in our relationship with the Baruch That's the thing that's going to ultimately bring the destruction, bring us into Golas. So whether it's Torah, whether it's, whether it's Bein Adam L'chavero, but either way you're going to look at it, there's been a significant shift in terms of sort of where that relationship is focused. I think this is you know, in a moment's thought makes this intuitively obvious to all of us. I mean, we come to shul and we daven, but it's not like, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not something that we're aware of on an ongoing basis. Uh, the idea that we have 613 misses were always things that we're doing, but, uh, you know, which one of these two, whether it's targ or, or gminus chasadim, we could, we could argue, but the, at the very least, we're seeing there's an amplification of the significance of these other elements in that relationship with the Kaddish Baruch I sort of wanted to make like a neat sort of setup of it, like the, the Bayes Rishon was going to be Avoda, Bayesheni was Gminul Sasadim, that would leave post Bayesheni to be Torah. And you could make that argument, um, but uh, you could argue, you could push back, but whether or not you neatly categorize it, there's no question that the focus of Torah in that relationship has increased significantly um, post the destruction of the First Temple. Which uh, we'll, we'll see in a minute why that's why, why that's important. But I mean, it, we see also in our it's sort of we can see on a micro level these kind of shifts in the way we orient that relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, The idea of the emergence of the Musar movement, the emergence of Hasidus, or the shift from uh, from Navardic as the primary approach of the yeshivas to Slobodka. Um, these are significant shifts and changes in sort of the flavor, the tone of the overall relationship and it's always a response to you know, what's going on in our environment. Something that I was hammering home at the, at the seminary all the time is every challenge has its opportunity just like every opportunity brings it, its unique challenges. The, uh, the loss of bias Rishon and the loss of that sense of awareness of a Kaddish Baruch which obviously is a huge drop 
in our experiential relation with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that's a big challenge, but it also created a whole new opportunity in terms of creating a relationship in the vacuum and the, the, the way the Torah filled that in, or whether it be more of a shift of awareness of accentuating the significance of my awareness of the divinity and people around me, like Nimitz Hasadim. But these changes, again, if you're going to buy a Rishon, buy a Shani, we're seeing disasters that are, but each one of those disasters, which is a response to a part of the relationship becoming corrupted, has forced us to put our attention to a new area. And again, this is a theme very much in my writings, that through the course of history, what we do is by this kind of specialization or focus, through the course of history, we actually create and develop all facets of our relationship with the Kaddish Barku. And so we, the, 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 the changing challenge is always creating those new opportunities. The, the, the classic example of this is in the, when Kaddish Barku was an intuitive sense of our, our, our awareness, Imuna was not an issue. That was a given. It was a question of what you did with that Imuna. It wasn't a challenge. We couldn't take credit for having that Imuna. In our generation, obviously, where it's so difficult to have Amuna, because we have to choose that Amuna, that we are creating that aspect of the relation with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And the idea is in each generation there's a different focus and the Kaddish Baruch Hu is above time. Every generation really contributes to the overall historical total relationship of the Jewish people with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. What I wanted to, I was, I was going to show some, some, some videos, but I, maybe some of you have seen some of these things. But I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, you know, as if we don't have enough problems. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, we're still sort of, uh, we're still trying to deal with the Internet, even though it's ancient history already. Our, uh, you know, the, I mean, Facebook is not such a challenge. I remember when Facebook was a challenge. I mean, the, the, the younger generation doesn't even know what Facebook is anymore. But the, um, you know, the Internet with its challenge, gender confusion, it's not like we don't have enough problems, but what I wanted to share was what appears to me a very significant challenge which is going to require our focus and why wait until the disaster is there to try and react to it? Why not recognize it while it's on the way and start to think about exactly how it is that we want to uh, prepare and react to it. And what I'm talking about is, uh, what I would say is there's a, a very deep malaise setting in. It has been for a while now, but in terms of starting with it, our standards for human relationships. Someone who writes about this is a woman named Sherry Turkle, who's sort of the, if you would take Jewish grandmother and MIT professor and put them together, what pops out is a, is a, is a Sherry Turkle. So she's, uh, she's a professor at MIT, but rather than being on the technical side, she actually researches the social influences of technology. Something that she's been doing for decades. She wrote a book about, it's over 10 years old at this point, it's called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. But the kinds of things that she talks about over there is the fact that people increasingly accept and even actually prefer relationships with computer simulations or robots than real people. This, is, I, this sounds like science fiction in Atlanta, but in Japan it's a reality where uh, robots increasingly are responsible for the care of elderly and soon enough for the care of children. I mean, it starts out like uh, maybe more innocuously. I don't know how many of you ever heard of a paro. You ever heard of a paro? Not the guy in Mitzrayim. But it was, uh, I mean, this is all long after, after my day, but it's actually, it's a, it's a, a robot seal. Like, you know, like the things with the big tail on the end that swim in the ocean kind of thing. Where it's, it's furry on the outside and it, and it squeals happily when you pet it. And, uh, and the, the, the person who created it actually intended it as a, uh, as a therapeutic robot for people who had dementia, who were increasing dementia. But it actually was it's also used to, uh, just to give to elderly, to, give, to, to, to work with their loneliness. And uh, one of the things that her, she's found in her, this Ms. Dr. T- Professor Turkel, Turkel found in her research was 
you find situations where the elder actually prefer, you know, like you, you, she, she's filming sessions where there's a grandmother who's more interested in her robot seal than the grandchildren that are visiting. Um, or this is something she talks about, but if you're feeling lonely, you can get an app on your phone now to have a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You can choose the degree of relationship you want. It's not so good. It's not that good. It's not that convincing. But there are, I mean, compared to my wife, whatever. There are millions of people that are using this thing. Millions. Millions of people that would, that, that, will, that, that are, you know, that, that's how they, you know, they spend their time with their, with their, here's just a computer simulation. It's not so good. But, but what I, I was, I, I, I invite you to look at home at, Two videos. You can if you if you type into your assuming if you have a, chi- a teenager <laughs> and you ask your teenager to type into their browser Boston Dynamics, right? What will come up are some of the most extraordinary robots. You can't imagine what they can make now. They now can make a robot that stands independently on two feet that again the, and the speed with which these things are developing is, is just scary but the at this point you can watch them running over obstacle courses you can take them outside walking in the snow you can watch them picking things up you can watch them jumping over obstacles you can watch them doing flips and landing successfully and what's new, like what came out last year was you can watch them dancing. And uh, that's, I really thought the music would be a hit here, whatever, I'm trying to remember, whatever. It's like, you wouldn't pay attention because I wouldn't dance. Now I'm going to show you my moves, whatever it is. And you see these robots dancing away, pirouetting. And what's astonishing is the subtlety of the movement that they can, they can achieve and the smoothness of the movement is, uh, is just astonishing. That's what's on the horizon. That's not far away. But that's nothing compared to if you type in Sophia. If you type in Sophia, then what comes out with a robot that's created by a company called Hanson Robotics, actually based in, I think, in Singapore or Hong Kong. It's an American guy, whatever. Where you can uh, look at a robot with a human face with a ability to express emotions on her face. There's so many motors inside of the skin she has like 15 emotions that she can show and she can talk quite intelligently uh, quite intelligently with you the one that there's a if you ever heard of Tom Robbins he's a psychologist there's a there's a you can you can get him having an interview and a discussion with Sophia it's fascinating just fascinating <laughs> I'm trying to remember at one point he asks her what does he ask her remember what the question was the answer was well when artificial intelligence brings robots to the level of human beings then this will be a topic of discussion that was her answer to the question that he asked I don't remember what the question was that he asked but again this is not this is not developed artificial intelligence but the robot's not coming up with all this on her, on her own it's scripted in terms of uh, you know there's a lot of you know, there are many, many very intelligent people and you can figure out their politics and their religious level and everything from the answers the robot gives. But the reality is that this thing is very, very convincing. There's actually a video of Will Smith talking to this robot. And he talks about the fact, he tries to give the robot a kiss, which she doesn't accept. But he says, you know, I really like it, it's so clear-headed. And she has a plastic cover over the top where the, uh, right, whatever, you have to be there to enjoy it. But the, uh, <laughs> I invite you all to take a look at one of these videos. Uh, it's pretty scary. <laughs> and, you know, whenever anyone's interviewed, it's interesting, the first question, whenever you give somebody the opportunity to interview the robot, almost always the first question is, do you have a soul? They ask the robot, do you have a soul? 
and then whatever's been programmed into the robot to, you know, how it understands that's what the question responds to it is less of, of an interest to the fact that this is the question that arises in our minds when we encounter something like this, which is effectively saying, what's left that differentiates me from you? <laughs> if you called it you, me from it. This robot can calculate faster than you can. And when it's been properly scripted, it can give incredibly intelligent answers to quite deep and sophisticated questions. I think we're probably, on some level, past the tour, what's called the Turing point, where can you distinguish, can you tell when you're talking to a robot as to a person? I'm assuming many of the call centers that we make now, you're not talking to a human being, you're probably talking to some sophisticated artificial intelligence kind of a thing. And I, I always, whenever I had to do one of these things, even five years ago, my first question was, are you a robot or are you a person? But you never believe the answer, whatever. <laughs> but I, this is the point, I, the point that I'm making is these things on a certain level already exist and we're not so far away from the point where they're going to be in the world that we're living. Maybe not those of us that are sitting in the room, but our children. It's almost inconceivable that our children are not going to be faced with these machines. They exist. They already exist. Um, And again, when we meet them, the question, you know, they think, they give intelligent answers. The one thing that we're sort of focused in on in terms of what distinguishes me from it is that I have a sense of self. Right? I have an awareness which, again, you can ask a computer, are you aware? And the computer will give you answers but we'll always have that, we'll always assume that the computer is not there. The computer scientists themselves are not so sure that they might come, not come to a point where some, spontaneously there'll be consciousness. I think we who are sitting in this room uh, will will maintain the position that this can't happen. This is already that's already Tselamelukin. That's that crosses a line that man can't cross. But there's no question you can create a, a machine that will be convincingly be able to, to appear not that way. But we will always assume that it's missing that sense of self, which becomes at this point the focal point of what makes us human, right? That's what we're moving towards. And basically my question is, in the same way that we always see that every challenge brings with it opportunity, every exile the Jewish people have been sent in, we've lost a part of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch, which has forced us to develop another part and that we actually understand that's the purpose of history. So if we are going to be increasingly focused on this element of our humanity where, you know, what is it that we are being called upon to develop and where does this facet of our personality fit into our overall relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Like, what do we need to be working on? Does that make sense as a questions, comments, regrets for having come in this evening? Or it's like, yeah, keep going. And I want to ask this question... Oh, I want to ask one other point, which is that there are other forces that have been moving things in this direction going back at least 500 years, which is... And this is something I've written about recently. Coming out, it's coming out in the spring. It's not a book, but I wrote a chapter for someone. If anyone's interested, I can, I can give you a printout on it. But the... Um, the definition of truth in the Western world for the last five, six hundred years has been understood that we achieve truth by removing any facet of human perspective from it. Now, we understand the extent to which my perspective as a human being influences what I'm seeing, that's a distortion of the truth. I need to remove my... Think of it, think of it scientifically, right? I'm interested... Or per, the, 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 way that, the way that my professor at Yale put it is it's perspectival awareness. We become aware of the fact that what we see is affected by our perspective. If we want to reach truth, we want to eliminate perspective from what we're seeing so that we get something which is what's known, what's, what's known as objective truth. But what that actually means is that our understanding of truth requires us 
to actually remove our humanity as much as we possibly can. And that that's, that, that, that is the, that, that, so the Western world, it's, and it's come to rather extraordinary extremes in our own day in terms of, I mean, when it first started out, people thought of more on a scientific level, but it very, very quickly bled into philosophy and, 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 and theology also. The, uh, the first instance of the big instance of it, I mean, there are things that predate this, but the first big instance of it is, uh, is, is, is Copernicus, right? Who came to recognize that the sun doesn't go around the earth. It just looks that way because we're seeing it from the earth. But if you get just out of that perspective, you'd realize that the earth is really going around the sun. So that was the, that was the first big uh, application of this idea. But Nietzsche comes right afterwards, basically, I mean, a few years later, but he himself cites Copernicus and says... It's not just in science that this is a reality. The human perspective is the thing that's influenced what we're seeing. And the whole you know, rejection of any relationship with the Kaddish Baruch was seen as something which is purely from the human perspective. And uh, you know, the Western world has been, has been removing the self from the picture for hundreds of years already. Yeah. The reason... The reason why it's coming the other way is because people have discarded that there is any concept of truth and therefore whatever you want to be the truth is the truth for you. But now truth has been, the word truth has now been basically destroyed by, by doing it that way. And it's, it's the, the basis of saying that is this thing that I've been talking about. You're just, you, we, we rejected the idea that there's such a thing as truth and therefore whatever you want is fine. But it's still based on this idea. So what I'm saying is if you want to add a, a Hanukkah element to what we're talking about tonight and justify the fact that you came out this evening, right? It's like uh, that when, we want, when we try to understand the difference between Greek intellectualism, which is where all this begins, and what Torah is all about, where Greece is ultimately leading to is this point that we're talking about now. And you have philosophers today that are very respected, talk, that, that actually dismiss the existence of the self entirely. You know, they basically they look at a human being as an input-output machine, nothing more than that. And anything anything else you're going to talk about is not just subjective; it's 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 a fantasy. And that, that's a completely respected position in, in in academia at this point. We're <laughs> so let, let, let's get back. So, well, where, how do we relate to this? thing called self. We're, and I want to ask this question specifically in the context of what is the essence of Torah, which is Amun. Right? The, uh, you know, there are many, many different facets to Torah, but ultimately it all boils down to different facets and approaches to Amun. The Gemara itself says this. Right? The Gemara talks about the fact that although we, the, the same Gemara from which we learned that there are 613 mitzvahs then goes on to say that David and Melech cut it down to 11 and then down to a 6, 5. Finally, Habakkuk comes along and says, Tzarek be'amunas What the Gemara is talking about is we're not saying that David and Melech was the first conservative Jew. That's not what it's saying over there. What we're saying is that as we became more distant from the spiritual awareness, it became less natural and, 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 and integrated part of our worldview. It became much more difficult to focus on the various details of things and therefore we had to focus on categories of mitzvahs rather than individual mitzvahs in terms of the intent that we bring to the mitzvahs. Like if I would put in front of any one of you, probably, I mean, maybe there's somebody who actually is a car mechanic here, but if I put a, a box of engine parts in front of any one of you, you probably wouldn't be able to figure out what it is at all. Or if you knew that you were going to have the test, you could study it and memorize it and remember it for a day like you did in college and forget it the next day like you did in college, Right. But if you're an actual car mechanic, you instantly be able to tell you every part, what it is, where, you know, where, which, 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 which make it goes to and what it does and when it goes wrong, what, what it looks like and what it sounds like. My wife was once at, a, at, a, at, a, at getting our car fixed when somebody drove in with a Mercedes and everybody's trying to figure out what was wrong with it. The guy walks in and he just smells the exhaust. He, tell, he told him what the problem was. I don't believe it. From smelling the exhaust, he can tell you what the problem was with the car. Right? So if you're familiar with it, you, know, you don't have to memorize anything. It's a natural part of your world. We don't have to memorize the mitzvahs. They were an intuitive... They were the, intuitively the structure of the reality we were living in. 613 was nothing. But once we beca- they became much more distant concepts rather than realities for us, it became increasingly difficult to identify and really relate to the, 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 the subtlety of the, of the nuances in each mitzvah. Categories until 
Tzadik be'emunasu yechei. The basis of every mitzvah is developing further my emunah in the Kaddish Baruch That's what it's all about, emunah. Emunah is the basis of everything. I want to understand how this focus on the self, we can understand the focus of the self in our personal projects of uh, developing our emunah. We're all together? Ready to say go? Yep. Fine. More by regret yet? <laughs> so when we come to the mitzvah of emunah, I'm going to use the Ramban's approach. And in terms of what we're talking about, there are there aren't really there are differences between the Ramban and the Rambam, but not, they're not relevant to this particular thing I'm talking about here. But the Ramban's approach to Amuna is the pasuk that that, record, that, that that commands us in Amuna is Anoch Hashem Alokecha, right? The first of the Yesedibros, Anoch Hashem Alokecha. The pasuk finishes off Anoch Hashem Alokecha Sheretzisichem I am the Lord your God that took you out from Egypt from the house of bondage. So it's a little bit funny because as everyone knows and as all the Mephorshim explain, your mitzvah is to have a moon in the Creator. That's the essential relation God has to the world that we have with the Creator. The Creator, why does it say you have to, I am the one who took you up from Egypt? So the Ramban explains that I, the Creator, you know that I'm Creator from your experience in Mitzrayim. You, saw, you witnessed the miracles of Mitzrayim and then as any former Midrash Atila student will be able to say, go ahead, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. The famous Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow. Yeah? Remember that? There you go. Yeah? Whenever we have a guest speaker, it's great. If they ever mention it, then the whole school will be like, yeah, yeah. The famous Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow. What the famous Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow says is, he basically says, why are we always mentioning you see his Mitzrayim? It's because it's through the experience of miracle that we recognize as the creator. If there was no creator, physical reality would be the basic structure of reality. There could be no violation of nature. Once we see systemic miracle, especially when it's with intention, then we know that there's a deeper structure to reality, that there is a, a creator. So ultimately, the Ramban now tells us we have an obligation of Amunah. We are obligated to get that Amunah from our Masora of the, of the miracles that took place in Mitzrayim. Yeah, that's the again. There's much, much to talk about here, but we're, we're, we're going. But what's interesting, though, even though that's true, the first time the Jews are credited with having a Muna was at Kriyas Yamsuf. So it's splitting of the sea. So maybe you'll say, okay, well, that was a, that was an even bigger miracle. Oh, maybe, okay, maybe. But the reality is another <laughs> book. You know, moment. Uh, the, my m- more recent book, the one on the what's it called? The intellect and the Exodus. Yeah, yeah. So that one actually goes through how each one of the ten makos reveals a different facet of a Kaddish Baruch Hu as the creator of the world. By the time you get through the ten of them, you really have all the information that you need to recognize a creator. Kriyat is a bigger level of, of of miracle, but you know, I already have what I need. Maybe yes, maybe no, but then you, if, if not that, then at the very least, the see the highest attainment in terms of Amuna is, Kadesh Baruch says, right before Kabbalah Satara, the Gambacha Le'olam. We attain Amuna Le'olam, eternal Amuna comes to us from Harsinai. Well, what's that talking about? The Ramban said, I get my Amuna from Yisias Mitzrayim. So we see that there seems to be some kind of like there's Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, Kriyas Yamsuf, and Kabbalah Zatara. So like, but the, the Ramban says that my Amuna comes from the miracles of Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. So what you, what's actually going on over here is the, the Pasuk that tells me the Aminu Bashem of Moshe Abdo, the, they believed in him at Kriyas Yamsuf, is immediately followed by Az Yashir. The next Pasuk after is Az Yashir. So those of you who, who daven, daven your, your, your Psukah to Zimra, you know, diligently in chakras say these psukim every single day, right? That you, you believe in Hashem as Yosher. Then, and then they sang. So what's the connection between these two? So the whole, the famous, why does as Yosher begin in the future tense? So Rashi says over there, the Pasuk as Yosher is not talking about the song. It's talking about the moment before the song when the inspiration to sing welled up in Moshe Rabbeinu and then came bursting forth. 
what we have to understand is when we talk about the Song of the Sea, we're not talking about uh, Mashiach, 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 I, Yai, 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 Yai. I, five times, therefore, he's talking about the five. Minutes. No, that's, a, that, that's not, we're talking about a, where you're really into it, right? inspirationally. I mean, something's welling up on the inside. And although there, there may be what we might call an external component to a Muna where we need to have an understanding of the world which integrates my awareness of Kaddish Baruch as the Creator, which really is what come out from the Yesamakos, but that has to be combined with an internal element, right? A connection with the aspect of our personality that has no doubt whatsoever about the existence of the Kaddish Baruch which is our Neshama, our Tzalem Elohim. And that's exactly what, what, it, what is it that wells up within that comes bursting forth as prophetic song. That is... Your deep, the deeper levels of self that ultimately, if we go high enough, emanate directly from Akash Baruch himself. So we're credited with a Muna when we can combine a what we might call an intellectual vision of reality, which integrates Akash Baruch as its creator, but that has to be combined with that compelling awareness, that internal compelling awareness of Akash Baruch We see that also, Sinai takes that to a whole other level. Because what happened at Sinai you know, like the Rambam himself talks about, like, what was unique about, about what happened to Harsinai that our, our, we have a Muna Olam from there, a Muna She'ein Bodofi, with, no, with no, no doubt about it whatsoever. So, the Pusik, when it describes the Jewish people's experience at Harsinai, it says that they were Roim Es Hakolos, that they saw the sounds of the shofar. Which, if you went through the 60s, may, you may have an interpretation of this. But for those who were still young at that at age, looking for something from Chazal, right? So when we're when we're using when when we're reading Torah, we have to try to be aware of the fact that we're not reading Hebrew, but we're re- reading Lashon Kodesh. And Lashon Kodesh means I need to relate to the language conceptually as well as specifically, meaning every term not only has a specific meaning in its place, but it's part of a larger context of conceptual understanding. When we talk about something like kol, which is heard, or re'iya, seeing something, these are distinct senses. And what distinguishes them is seeing something means it's so clear to me. Seeing is believing before Photoshop. Yeah. Part of the gullus. Photoshop is part of the gullus, right? <laughs> right? Seeing is believing. Seeing is compelling, but the limitation of seeing is has to be right in front of you. Right, that you can't see that much, but what you can see, that's clear. Hearing, I can hear much further, but it's not convincing. I can't give testimony in court about what I hear. I can have, give testimony to only what I see. Right, so there are things that are compelling for us, and there are things that are more distant. Under normal circumstances, what's compelling for us is our physical reality. That dominates our awareness by far. And when Rabbi Feldman comes up here and starts talking about some very, you know, high spiritual concept is yeah I hear it you know I get a, I have a sense where it's very far away you know the example I would use with my girls which I get a lot of I get a lot of pushback on is like you know the physical experience if I described to you eating a piece of pizza right as your tooth cracks through the crunchy part of the crust leading the soft part breaks through so the little salty hot liquid comes down and the chewiness of, 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 of the of the cheese comes into play right now all right, fine. It's 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 absolutely embarrassing that I can describe that with such clarity, right? But the reality is embarrassing that you're all there when I'm describing it, right? Because we live in that world. But when you're talking about like the five levels of the neshama, chay yechida, it's like I hear it. It's like very very far away from us. Rowing as it calls what it's saying over there is what was normally re'ia, actually what normally was shmia, which is that spiritual stuff became re'iyah, roim esakos, which means, the whole point of Harsinai was not that it was a compelling thing that we saw, it was a compelling experience that we were. Right? What happened on Harsinai is we became our neshamas. Under normal circumstances, I'm a goo, I'm a body, with a neshama. But at Harsinai, we were a neshama, with a goo. Right? right? The, the, the balance of the facets of our personality were, 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 were upended in that experience so that God wasn't something that was, out, it was something happening outside of us. It, it, Amuna wasn't something that we had. It was something that we were at that moment. It was indistinguishable from our awareness of self. That's the point. 
And the portion speak about this. The, old, the one mitzvah in the Torah that's not a mitzvah is a muna. Anochi Hashem Elokecha is a statement. There's no mitzvah there. And yet the major Rishonim all see it as a commandment. Why? Because the commandment is that it should be a fact. It should be a fact for us. It should be as, tr- as real for us as our own awareness of self. That's what we're supposed to be getting to. Ramosha Shapiro, when he was when we talk when he was talking about this topic, he said the pasuk that we that we, that we say in the Shir Shel Yom Hashabbos, Lahagid Baboker Chazdecha, Bemenascha Balelos. We should we have to speak out his Chesed, his kindness in the morning, and his Amuna at night. So Ramosha explained that. There's a fundamental difference between day and night, right? There's a reason why we say Kriya Shema twice during the day, once in the morning, because day and night are two completely different realities. Day is a time when there's light, and I'm aware of reality and all the elements of reality, and I can be aware of the chesed of a Kaddish that has given it to me. But the whole point of night is when the lights go out, I have nothing but myself. Right? And what the Pasuk is telling me is in that experience of self is the root and the basis of Amuna. He went on to say, when I say these words, I'll just I'll say, when I say, nobody really understands what I'm saying, right? because we don't have night anymore. <laughs> it's like the Western world has made war on night. It's like uh, night is nothing more than a cloudy day. Right? Just like during the day, we're effectively, at a certain level, lost in our awareness of the world around us and all of its particulars. Night is an opportunity to be aware of the self that is aware of all this creation. And just as we no longer have night, in a very real sense, we have forgotten that we have a self because we lose that awareness of self in the distractions of all the things that are around us. I mean, this has been, again, up, well, you know, I used to talk about this, I'm dating myself by saying this, but I used to talk about the iPod. They didn't even have an iPod anymore. Like, even know what an iPod is, right? But the iPod was, I could always be listening to music. No, no, no time alone with myself anymore. That was the iPod. Now we have the iPhone, right? Forget it, right? Like, Whatever. I'm just saying that, um, but what does it mean to say that Imuna com- comes at night when the world effectively disappears and I only have myself? So, like, usually in these kind of like things, like when rabbis are talking, ego gets a pretty bad rap. <laughs> but there's an aspect of, I mean, maybe ego is not exactly the right world, word, sense of self. One of the names of a Kaddish Baruch Hu is Ani. Right? Ani Vahu, we say it on, on Sukkot, we say it all the time, the Mishnah, Mishnah in Sukkot talks about this. Ani Vahu Oshiyana. Okay, they go into all the Kabbalah, you know, whatever, who knows, who understands what these, things, what these things actually mean, right? But Ani is the name of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. What that means is, in the aware of Aniusness, I, that is and enge- we have the possibility of engaging in Kaddish Baruch Hu. The more powerful expression of that is when Hillel said it in Shweve, Im Ani Kan HaKol Kan, which is, if I am here, then everything is here. So that's either the most egotistical statement in history or the most egoless statement in history. In the case of Hillel, it's the most egoless. But the word Ani, if I am here, there are two meanings there. There's I meaning I, Hillel, am here, but it's I with a small I, not with a capital I. And through the experience of I-ness, I have an ability to connect up to Kaddish Baruch Hu. The way I would, I would explain this is like this. that This is the... I, I apologize for the, showing my philosophical side. But everything that we know 
we know from the outside what it looks like, with one exception. We, there's only one thing that we know what it is, as opposed to how I see it or understand it. And that's myself. <laughs> In the experience of self, I am me. <laughs> I am me. I'm not looking at me. Or at least I have the possibility of being aware of me. And ultimately, that is, whether we're conscious of it or not, that experience of self is the reference for all of reality for us. Because it's the only engagement of reality, direct engagement of reality that we have. The reason why nobody believes in the Kaddish Baruch, we live in a world where people don't believe in the Kaddish Baruch is because the, the, the experience of self is so empty and superficial at this point that if, if, if my experience of myself has no depth to it, then I can't possibly project it onto the world around me. Right? If, I have an, if I can touch those deeper parts of myself and I can see my selfhood you know, emptying out into a larger reality that goes way beyond me as an individual, then if I have that sense for that reality, then I'll see everything around me connected in that same way. But our self is completely emptied out at this point. Another way of saying that is that the Shem Yud Kevavke is the confluence of three vowels, Hayahoyiye, present, past, and future. It doesn't mean that has always been around. What it means is God is being itself. That's what it means. God is being. God is existence. Something that's totally, usually totally lost on us. But right? God is existence, and therefore nothing can exist unless it's on some level participating in God. What that means is, if I, when I am aware of my own existence, I am aware of an echo of a Kaddish Baruch Right? Unless you're so lost that you, when you experience that, that, that sense of being that you actually think it's something that's, which we actually do, or whatever, right? It's something independent of its own, on its own right, but it's not. It's like any, if you, with any sensitivity whatsoever, I become aware of the fact that my experience of being is nothing more than an emanation of something much, much larger than me, which is another way of saying, when I use the word ani, I, it is a name of God. Because the whole point, he is being. So to the extent that I'm aware of myself as existing, in that, in that experience, in that awareness, I can, I, I, I can touch on the deepest level possible that I'm capable of, touch on, on an awareness and a connection to a Kaddish Baruch I personally don't think it's accidental that the mitzvah of Muna comes with anochi Hashem Elokecha. And the Mepharshim actually talk about this difference between a knee and an okay without going, I don't understand these things, whatever. But I'm saying, it's a, but the, the, there are different levels of awareness of I, and Anochi is the deepest of them. Where I, and it's really, it's, 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 you know, this, this, that's this level that Hill is talking about. I can have this awareness of I where it's really, it's really, a, 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 you know, it's a, a connection to a Kaddish Baruch If you want a mitzvah, where we actually focus in on this thing, this is what shofar is all about. This is what the shofar is, right? The shofar is, we blow the shofar on the day in history when a Kaddish Baruch who created Adam, which is Vayipach, Bapav, Nishmas Chaim, Kaddish Baruch Hu and puffed and blew the soul into Adam, right? And the Mepharshim speak about the fact that Vayipach, Bapav is paralleled in our action of blowing the shofar. Vayipach, we blow into that shofar. And ultimately, there's a very interesting medrash. Ramosha cited this medrash. It's, it's in, 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 in Baloscha, by the trumpets. The medrash, which is clearly talking about the actual mitzvah of blowing the shofar that we do. It's like the, the, the Gemara has a different version of, of the actual, but the de- derivation of Malchias, Zichronath, and Shofros. It's talking about us actually doing the mitzvah of shofar. And in the midst of that discussion, Says the, me, says the Medrash, and who's blowing the shofar? HaKadosh Baruch was blowing the shofar. What do you mean HaKadosh Baruch was blowing the shofar? You know, I've got a Balto Kea standing right up there that's doing it. I have no doubt. There's no doubt about it. What does it mean HaKadosh Baruch was blowing the shofar? What it's saying is that when he's blowing the shofar, it's a continuation of the blowing of HaKadosh Baruch of the Neshama into him. Like a circle coming down and coming around. Now we vayipach that nishmas chaim into the shofar and bring it back to the Baruch Hu. But the sound that you hear when you hear the shofar blast, what you're hearing is the 
sound of your neshama being blown into you. This is the day. This is Rosh Hashanah. It's the day when Akadosh Baruch blew the neshama into Adam, and we revisit that every Rosh Hashanah. And when we're listening to the shofar, we're actually listening to the sound of the neshama being imparted into the goof and us coming into being. It's the, 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 the level of this mitzvah and what it's actually doing. That which it is communicating that which cannot be communicated. It is communicating the ultimate subject, subjective experience. I can't share with you my experience of being. I can talk about it, but I can't share it. You can be, and I can ask you to reference your own awareness of being. But I can't describe, I can't articulate my experience of being. I can describe it, but I can't articulate the actual experience. The idea of the shofar is the shofar is your opportunity for each and every one of us to echo into our own personal experience of that awareness of our own being. And that's the basis of a muna. If you're looking for a sort of a, if, if, if Rosh Hashanah once a year is a little too much for you, we're looking for something a little bit more constant, on a certain level, in tefillah is a time when we have an opportunity, which makes sense. It's the avoda. Tefillah is a time when we have the opportunity the moment, the space to be aware of this on some level. The Gemara talks about the fact that when you're davening, you're supposed to bow before we say Shem Hashem. And then we stand up when we say Shem Hashem. And the Gemara is actually surprised by this a little bit, but whatever. It brings it out in the Pesukim in the end. But the point is like this, basically. Before Kaddish Baruch, I can only, I can only, all I can do is completely prostrate myself. So what's the standing up? At a certain point, I'm no longer before Kaddish Baruch, but rather he's coming into the world through me. And I'm not distinct from him. At that point, I can stand up as I pronounce the Shem Hashem. Right? It's like, uh, if I'm standing before Kaddish Baruch, I'm on the ground. So how can I stand up? Because in the deepest moment of connection, I'm no longer standing before Kaddish Baruch, rather he's coming into the world through me. I empty myself out of my empty out of myself any egotistical aspect of my awareness of self, and that awareness of self now becomes the the, the conduit through which Kaddish Baruch is connected up to the world. I like I, I like it's going to sound funny for anybody who's heard me speak before. It's like. This is unusually abstract even for me. <laughs> like, I apologize. But the only reason why I'm talking about these things is this is, gonna, I, this, is, this is going to become a problem for us in the sense that, in terms of what I was describing before about when man can make things that so convincingly present themselves as being everything that we pride ourselves in and being human, what's going to happen to the amuna of our children? There is one, this, this, like, history is moving us increasingly towards a point where we become, it becomes necessary to focus in on this at the very time when history makes it the most difficult of possible. Meaning in a, time, in a world which robs us of that awareness of self, that becomes the challenge that we need to overcome, which is always the way history has worked for us as a people. That is that that is the challenge to be able to grab onto this aspect of our experience and actually build it into a new strength. And ultimately, what we hear of this is the ultimate strength. That this is the this is the ground of Amuna. This is the ground of Amuna, which is the which is our responsibility. Society is moving in this direction. You don't like the robots, leave the robots out. <laughs> the reality is that that, that that people people accept machines and computer simulations as substitutes for real human relationships. That's a reality already. The fact that some people even prefer it is scary, but it's also a reality. <laughs> I was on the plane. <laughs> I was sitting next to the, 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 an older couple that had brought their dog with them. 
And there was another person on the plane who had left their dog at home with it was feeling a little guilty. So there was a lot of conversation going on between these two people. And, uh, and the lady who had left the dog at home mentioned, you know, I miss my dog. And she whispered, even more than my daughter. <laughs> it's like, uh, it was a joke, but actually it's not a joke. It's like, uh, you know, like my wife and I were in an elevator. I mean, maybe you run these, but in, in when we were we were we were we were in Boston and we were in an elevator. There was a lady with her dog. So my wife, always trying to be pleasant, says, "You know, cute dog." So a lady says, "Oh, he's so fat." <laughs> right. That was after we'd passed a store that was a dog sweet shop called Bon Appetit. (laughs) The two things going on here. One is the diminution in our expectations from our relationships with people and the increased sophistication of the substitutes that we have for those relationships. I think these things are in, in, in your children's lifetime. This is going to become. This is going to be something. This is going to. This is going to be something that's going to force us to be asking questions about the nature of our humanity, which are difficult questions. But the point that I'm trying to make is, if we look carefully at what's going on, what we see is this is like every other point in history where we're faced with a challenge which is ultimately a tremendous opportunity for an, uh, for a, the development of an unexercised muscle in our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch in this case it's the ultimate muscle which is emuna and engaging that emuna on the deepest levels of awareness that we are capable of engaging in again I apologize <laughs> I think I just think it's important. <laughs> Questions, comments? Yeah, go ahead. First of all, thanks for coming. Um, if people are really satisfied with entities and communicating with things that, are, that have no sense of self, they're, they're less interested in connecting with another, with a parallel sense of self person. And they're losing their sense of self in this process. So for the average Joe, for the average Joe, what's practical? Like, how do we do that? The average Jacob is the one we're talking oh, about God. now. <laughs> so what's, our, what's our responsibility? Yeah. The world is going in the direction it's going, and our responsibility is to figure out how we, and it's going that way awfully quickly. You know, like, whatever. Like, if you're outside the United States looking at what's going on over here, you just see a place absolutely disintegrating before your eyes. The country that I grew up in does not exist anymore. Um, and it's just I find it astonishing the speed with which things are which, with which which things are moving. But so, what's going to happen in the world is going to happen in the world. Our question is only what our what's our responsibility as Herb Zervin Jews to be. So I'm I'm more putting that I, I'm less bringing solutions than sort of inviting everyone to be thinking about these things. You know, it's like we've been broadsided by a number of extremely serious challenges by the modern world that we're living in and there's more to come and instead of sort of playing catch up after it's after the catch up has already spilled all over everything um, trying to be thinking about you know what how we want to be sort of developing ourselves almost in preparation for this you know why wait until we have a whole nother big you know portion of quality so that gets torn out of us because you know because this is coming along if we can see so clearly that it's there and it's on the horizon then we need to be giving thought to it's you know, look, look how hard it is for, I, I, fine I can say the words that it's the you know you think you can explain this to a 14 year old kid you know, like uh, like like you know, if we don't get our kids in high school Recovering them in college is a whole challenge in its own right. It's like, uh, and there are segments of the Jewish people that are losing their children faster than you can imagine. You know, like we need to be giving some thoughts how it is that we develop our connection to this deeper part of ourselves, and how we can sort of share that 
you know, make it a living reality for ourselves and set examples for our kids and be teaching our kids also to, uh, to appreciate this part of themselves and how it can lead them to an, a, a deeper awareness. I don't, have, I don't have answers on that level. But I'm really I'm, I'm putting it out there for, for for us all to be thinking about this together. That uh, you know, he's bodhidus, uh, you know, contemplation, meditation, whatever it is. But um, if we don't start working on it now, uh, the the problem is the problem is going to present itself. And I, uh, I think so anyway. Yeah. How do you recommend that we work on, on teaching our kids to relate to other people that relate to fatigue? I mean, I know that for myself it's been hard. It's becoming more difficult. Yeah. Um, how, how do we work towards that shift towards forcing ourselves towards the direction? Obviously, childhood has an has element. But how, how do we, in general, work on our own selves to, to undo the damage that we've already done? Because it's getting more. I mean, both of these work together because ultimately your appreciation of another human being means you have to engage their Tzalem Elohim and you can't engage that Tzalem Elohim unless you've engaged it inside of yourself. These are sort of a feedback thing over here a little bit. Now, I, I, what I'm describing this to my girls is like, you recognize somebody, so like you, you're having lunch with somebody, say, listen, stop chewing, don't say anything, try to be still because you're distracting me, I'm trying to relate to your Tzalem Elohim. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It's like what it is is the unique creativity of that person is their cell okay to appreciate the I actually gave this class when I was here last time about before Pesach that you know you want to believe in miracles just appreciate your own Bechira Bechira every act of choice is a miracle by definition miracle means a break in the causal change and that if it's not a break in the causal it's not a choice you chose you have to stand above things every you know there, there, we, 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 we should be dumbstruck by the world around us we should be dumbstruck by People that is the people is the basic humanity of the people around us. Language, the people, the people. Like I was listening to whatever. You, any, even even the, even the most mundane of conversations involve a degree of sophistication that's like beyond beyond imagination. Uh, I, you know, maybe it starts with just a, a beginning. To, you want, we want to be if we would appreciate the world around us more and appreciate what makes what makes us unique as human beings, and that that's. The opportunity to be able to be living that and engaging that is—that's what life is really all about. Everything else is really almost like follow-through. Like it's all—it's all context. It's all context for that. Just like, you know, life is supposed. Life is about making choices. But how often do we ever are we ever conscious of that or really stand up and really make a genuine choice where I say I see that there are two things before me and I'm not just going to go with what my inclination is but I'm going to stand above it and say which one represents me as a person I'm going to do this because it's an expression of who I am as a, on a deeper level a guttle is doing that constantly all day long every day we like we it gets lost in the rough for us you know we could go through a lifetime without ever making a choice or doing it consciously or you can sort of wake that. You can say it's you know it's like you can almost start anywhere. There's there's so much to do, but it's uh, I think it's all it's all part and parcel of that larger picture. I'm sorry, yeah. yeah so there's there's a, one point that keeps popping into my head as you're as you're speaking. It was, you referred a couple times to the reduction in the expectations of our relationship with people, and I keep thinking about that maybe it's actually the reverse that we're, we we have hyper-unrealistic expectations of the people around us. When you look at society today and political correctness, which you can and can't say, that the challenges to, to how do I maneuver, how do I relate to people, what can, you know, who am I, you know, all of the, the things about gender that you mentioned at the beginning. So many of these things make us, make us uncomfortable with people. So maybe, maybe, it's not, maybe it's not as much that I have on a, a reduced expectation of people is that, that no, people can't live I, I don't know how to live up to the expectations of, of the world around me or the people around me um, and part of maybe part of maybe the response is to say okay, you know, here are all the things that people can do for you that a person to person relationship can do for you that machines never could you know, what, what, what is the solution the solution is, is is honest relationship and engagement with your children face to face 
learning together. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's bringing back the human without yeah. the facade of, and the noise of, of, of the moment, of today. Yeah. No, for sure. I, I, but I'm not. What, what, I, I, everything you're saying is correct. What do what, 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 you? No, you're right. So, so I guess. So I guess you know. My, my reaction was to the idea that we've got a, a reduction in our expectations of of people, and that's what's driving us to alternative relationships with machines. Well, there, it's allowing us to accept them as substitutes because the advantage of a machine is I have no responsibilities. They're like they're they're designed basically to mirror to, 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 to mirror me whatever I want. Whatever I want. So yeah. It's, it's the echo chamber. Right? Yeah. I don't have to, and I also don't have to worry about what I say and how I say it. It allows us to be incredibly selfish, incredibly self-centered. Like we build up on that, we build that self-centeredness. It's like it's for, totally for me. The fact that there's another human being there that has a legitimate right to exist, live, grow, experience is lost. It's just it's all just a mirror. But you can have human relationships like that also. <laughs> no problem. Most people do, right? It's a it's an effort to have a relationship with another person. As opposed to having a, a, a relationship with, Revolver used to do this exercise with his students. He'd say, "I want you for two weeks. I want you to go in every day, once a day, be aware of the needs of another person." So they come back after two weeks, and everybody says, "You're all just projecting your needs on the other person. I want you to be aware of the other person, what they need." And it's like it's a, very easy to go through life just seeing other. At, at, we all know people like this, where it's so so belate, so so obvious that it's a that it's a, uncomfortable, but it's. Uh, and we're all guilty of this to a certain extent, but yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, and this part, this is part of the answer to your question also, which is that we need to savor the complexities and the beauty of real human relationships. And we want—that's what we want. We want to train our—that's for sure is what we want to be training our kids in. For sure, we want to train that in our kids, and that requires time <laughs> and focus and energy—the three things none of us have, right? Right. I once wrote a list <laughs> early on in my marriage <laughs> uh, I wrote, uh, of things that <laughs> we would try to work on as a couple. And one of them was to get enough sleep. <laughs> Come on, who are you kidding? Nobody has time for to get enough sleep. Like We'd all be in a better mood. It'd be easy. Everything would be easier if we all got enough sleep. But who has time to get enough sleep? It's like unrealistic. Whatever. <laughs> okay, you've all been very patient. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> Thank you.